Hello listeners, I'm Nay, and welcome back to another episode of the Focal Point Podcast. Today I'm very excited to be joined by Jeff Lim, the co-founder of Cedars. After graduating from the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Virginia Law School, Jeff started his career as a lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell before undertaking an MBA at the University of Oxford and venturing into entrepreneurship. In 2009, with Carlos Silva, he founded Cedars, which is now Europe's most active equity crowdfunding platform. Jeff is currently serving as chairman of the firm. A very warm welcome to the podcast. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. We're excited to hear from you. So just kick us off. Could you take us through your journey into entrepreneurship? Obviously, I've given a brief overview, but it'd be really interesting to hear more about sort of, you know, what sort of made you sort of leave law and start your own business in a very unrelated field? Absolutely. So I, I think I probably always had a little bit of, of, of background interest in the entrepreneurial world. And, and you know, I, I graduated university in 2000, which meant that in it was the in the autumn of 99 was when, you know, my class was looking at n- next opportunities. And, you know, that was the the, the height of the last of the, the dot com as it was then sort of boom. And, you know, I thought crossed my mind, do I sort of head out to as in America, do I head out to Silicon Valley, try to make my fortune? And for various reasons, I went down a much more traditional path of going to law school, you know, in, in the autumn of 99, that looked like potentially a not so great idea a year later. Later, when things had all kind of fallen apart following the dot-com bust, you know, it didn't look so it didn't look so unwise. But in any event, the, the idea had always been on my mind. But I think what really began to drive me was I went to law school, did a further law degree at Oxford, practiced in New York and London, intellectually very much liked the work. I was doing mostly MA, corporate finance, found it very interesting. The hours were brutal, but that's that's part of the course. But I think what I found really interesting was the juxtaposition between, you know, the 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 work I was seeing and the kinds of businesses I was working with, largely very big banks and companies often taking over very big other banks and companies. And there never really seemed to be much value creation in the process. I mean, there were, you know, the words were used and there was all sorts of financial engineering that might make it look like money was being made, but actually often net-net a whole lot of value was being destroyed because these were big lumbering companies largely that had kind of run out of ways to, to, to you know, to, to genuinely build new things, innovate, create new value. And then the juxtaposition was that one of the things that happens when you're a young corporate lawyer is that your friends who are, who are doing startups sort of, you know, pester you for free legal advice. And so I, you know, got very, very peripherally involved with a few, you know, with a few friends, just kind of helping them think about setting up companies. And I was looking at these businesses where it was, you know, two people, you know, three people, you know, and a dog in a garage somewhere and, 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 you know, no resources, nothing, but they were doing these super clever, creative, interesting things that, you know, yes, were high risk, but had the potential to create massive value. And I sort of look, you know, where do I want my career to sit? What do I want, you know, what do I want, I want to do for the rest of my career, both in terms of making money, but also in terms of, you know, you know, leaving some sort of an impact. And I said, I think what these guys are doing looks much more interesting. I think that's, you know, that's where value is going to be created going forward. Um, and so I kind of took the plunge. I had no idea kind of how or what, to, how to become an entrepreneur or what to do. But I figured, you know, do the thing that people who don't know what they want to do, do, which is go do an MBA. And it was, you know, very good luck that I met my co-founder, Carlos Silva. And, you know, it was, you know, he had this idea and pitched it to me and we started working on it as a business school project. And, you know, and 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 then one day, uh, we sat down and said, you know, this thing, this thing really works. Let's go, let's go give it a try. And and as they say, the rest is history. 
That's definitely a very interesting journey. Thank you for sharing that with us. And sort of linking again your time in law and then obviously your time in entrepreneurship, were there any skills sort of that you learned during university or your time as a lawyer that you found very useful as an entrepreneur? And just as well as in general, what skills do you think are essential to succeed as an entrepreneur? Yeah, no, it's look, it's a good question. I mean, I I I think that, you know, I value my time the time I spent. I mean, I only practiced law for about four years, but but I value that time hugely. And I think that the experience of being in a sort of first class professional environment. Uh, teaches a huge number of skills, you know, you know, university is obviously very valuable for what it, it is and for the sort of broad subject matter knowledge. But in terms of, you know, how business is conducted, how people interact with each other, how others think, you know, even so much as, you know, understanding the importance of, you know, of, of, of quick replies to emails and understanding, you know, how to handle yourself in certain meeting situations. You know, those are, are one might call them soft skills, but they're very, very important, very useful. And, and one of the things I've long said, I I mean, I, you know, there's been a move, Peter Thiel and others, you know, don't go to university, don't get a job, become an entrepreneur immediately. And I think for some people that can work and that's great. But but by and large, I think a few years, you know, if you can, in a banking, consulting, legal, high-end corporate environment before doing so has a huge amount of value. I think that's very useful. I, I think the flip side is you don't want to stay too long because, you know, what those environments you know, what the, the negative thing they do from an entrepreneur perspective is they sort of beat your risk appetite out of you. They get you used to sort of having to dot every I and cross every T and make sure that, you know, everything has gone through three committees and, and, and all of that. And that is all anathema to what it is to build a business. I mean, build, yeah, the, although move fast and break things has, has come to be, you know, you know, seen not necessarily as the greatest terminology anymore. The notion that certainly, you know, when you're starting a business, no matter how great your plans are, no matter how well prepared you are, you got to do a lot of stuff quickly. You got to throw a lot of things at the wall and see what sticks. You've got to be willing to accept 80% as, as, as good enough in order to get onto the next thing. And, and I think that, you know, the, the more traditional environments make that hard. So so, so certainly one part of my transition into being an entrepreneur was 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 trying to keep the things that were valuable and trying to unlearn the things that that were um, less valuable. And look, I'll tell you to this day, there are still people within our business and 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 elsewhere who, you know, the moment I say anything a little too formal or a little bit not quite entrepreneurial, I'll be like, oh, you know, Jeff the lawyer is coming back at at, at this. I mean, so I I think, you know, I can't I can't say I've unlearned everything, but you do have to unlearn some of it as much as as much as you also have to carry over some of the skills. That's an interesting way of looking at it. That that makes a lot of sense actually, of course, anywhere where you stay for too long can become a comfort zone. And I can Exactly. Yeah. So I, I get that philosophy. And it's it's great to hear that obviously the there were things that, you know, that, that those environments taught you and the soft skills, especially, I think that's, it's often easy to forget, like things like entrepreneurship, like you sort of think of like coding and things being big parts of it, but the soft skills still carry in these things. So yeah, that's very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And then onto a bit more sort of your personal journey, you know, what were the biggest challenges that you faced in terms of founding Cedars and how did you overcome those challenges? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it, look, in, in, in some ways, I very much recognize that I was in a, a very fortunate position. I mean, I, I was, I, it was when, Star, when Carlos and I started working on Cedars, 
I, I was engaged by the time we were full time on it. My wife and I were married. My wife was working. And as a result, you know, financially, we were able to sort of get by in those early years without my making, you know, any real money. And so that, you know, that's something I appreciate, you know, just doesn't doesn't shape up for a lot of people. And I had a few other things that were certainly very, very useful. Look, I think the, you know, the early days, while they were a lot of fun, you know, were hugely hard and certainly took an emotional toll and, and created a lot of stress. I mean, in our particular case, you know, we were in the early days of what kind of became the big fintech wave that the UK has seen and with a huge amount of success. But, you know, we really, you know, nobody really fully clocked you know, what it meant to be trying to get a, a business authorized by the, what was then the Financial Services Authority, now Financial Conduct Authority, in a completely innovative and new space. And, you know, so we had sort of all the regular stresses of trying to build a business, raise some money, build a platform, do the tech, do everything that went with it. And then this real unknown and very opaque and at times quite counterintuitive regulatory process sitting on top of it. And, and you know, there were times when that got exceptionally difficult. And I mean, the, the story I always tell is that, you know, it was, it was almost, it was about three years, you know, pre-launch work, getting to the point, getting to the, the business and the platform to the point where we could even go to the regulator and then actually going through a long regulatory process. And we had finally gotten, you know, we, we had finally gotten uh, word from the regulator on a sort of informal basis saying, it's all good. You're going to be approved. We're just going through the final motions. You're great. And this is the thing we've been waiting for for three years. And it was absolutely amazing. And Easter weekend of 2012, my wife and I uh, were taking a long weekend to Budapest. And I remember sitting in Luton Airport uh, at 4.59 p.m. and getting a, and seeing I'd missed a call and having a, a voicemail uh, or no, it wasn't even voicemail. It was an email at 4.59 you know, p.m. saying from the FCA or FSA was then saying, we've reconsidered and now we don't think we're going to authorize you. And I tried, I immediately pick up the phone to call back. And of course, the person who sent it's left the office because she, she pressed send and dashed for the door. And so, you know, I, my wife and I had this sort of surreal weekend in Budapest where we're kind of wandering around in this kind of state of, of shock, thinking, oh, well, that's three years of work down the drain and a whole lot of other other consequences to it. And then we got back to London and realized, you know, you know what, you're in a minefield, all you can do is keep going. And so we you know, started just fighting back every way we could and eventually persuaded the FCA to uh, reinstate our authorization and and went from there. But there were there were there were plenty of near death experiences. That one certainly the sharpest of them. But we had we had a we had a whole lot. And you know, for us getting to launch, you know, getting to the point in July 2012 where we were able to actually open the platform for business. You know, for many people, that's I mean, it is just the start of a business. For us, though, it had been a long journey even just to get to that to get to that point. I could probably share a lot of other other sort of similar stories, but I, I think that the 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 net of it is, I've, you know, I've loved it. It's been fascinating. It's been great work. I've, I've loved doing it, but it has been a long, hard slog as well. And I don't think I don't think it's possible to sugarcoat just how much sort of hard work and stress and blood and sweat and tears and all goes into it. <laughs> No, I can imagine how that story is gut-wrenching to hear that obviously it's so essential to, you know, the functioning of your firm for the regulators. But you were the first crowdfunding equity platform to be approved by the FCA, yep. which is absolutely incredible achievement. And that has paved the way for other firms, I'm sure. Well, um, I, yeah. I, and I, what I guess I would say certainly is, you know, I don't know how much we did singularly, but there, there were, there were, you know, a few fin early fintech firms that sort of 
bore the scars of, of, of the regulators learning process. But as a result of going through that, I think we opened up a wonderful, we and others opened up a wonderful wave of fintech innovation in this country. And that's a, a proud legacy. Yeah, that's really great to hear. The next thing I wanted to ask you is sort of looking more into the future, I guess, of venture capital. You know, where do you think that is going to head? And how do you think startups can stay resilient through sort of the economic crises that we're seeing right now? You know, this looming two-year recession. It's quite a pessimistic sort of outlook, <laughs> really. Well, it, it, you know, it, 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 it is. And, and we've had such a, a strangely long bull market in so many ways that you know, there aren't that many people around who really, you know, really meaningfully remember the last downturn. And yes, 2008, 2009 was a was a tough period for a number of reasons, but but this is different in many ways harder. Look, long term, I remain very bullish on 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 venture and on the sort of startup landscape. You know, the thesis that I have had ever since starting Cedars, we, 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 you know, it, you know, continues to hold, and that's that. You know, value creation is going to continue to be increasingly captured by small agile firms that are able to respond to the ever-changing world and market and that the advantages the scale that came in the 20th century matter less and less you know that it is even 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 the big tech titans are not invincible and that you know creative people are able to build amazing things and and investors who invest in them are going to be handsomely rewarded for that so in the long term i think nothing changes i think i think nothing changes and the trend accelerates the trend if anything accelerates but yeah we're in for a few very tough years and 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 I think that, you know, venture capital is a very imperfect section of the capital market. Certainly part of what we've tried to do with Cedars is bring bring a little bit of transparency and discipline to the asset class, but it's it's still got a long ways to go. And I think that just as valuations and 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 general approaches, you know, to to investing in businesses, you know, got quite frothy over a few years. I think they'll probably be artificially depressed for a few years. And I think that, you know, anybody starting a business today has to recognize that, you know, that, that some of the kind of outlandish valuations that people were getting, particularly in the early stages, you know, over the last three, four, five years, aren't going to be, aren't, aren't going to be aimed. I think, you know, in time, the market will correct again, and maybe we'll find more of an equilibrium, but I, I think it's just the reality. My own view, though, and, and, and this is something I feel very strongly about, is that you know valuation alone is 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 you know shouldn't be a driving issue for entrepreneurs. I mean, I think I think there has become a mindset in recent years that oh, you know, you got to make sure you raise your seed round at 20 million, 30 million pound plus valuation, otherwise you get too diluted, nobody will want to look at you, et cetera, et cetera. I've never really bought into that. I mean, I think that you know, you you know, people should be taking cash as a business, you should take cash when it comes and worrying about dilution is 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 really a, a second or third order concern. And if suddenly we get back to the world where we were in, you know, our initial rounds were being raised at sort of million pound valuations. And we did take a lot of dilution. And I didn't wind up with as much of the business when we sold it as I might have liked. But I, you know, that was the reality of the market at the time. And had I been dilution sensitive, we never would have raised the cash we needed and we never would have had a business to to build and sell in the first place. So, you know, I think, you know, my, my, my key word of advice, you don't want predatory terms. There are, there are all sorts of sort of specific things to watch out for. But, you know, the notion that it may require more sacrifice on the valuation front, you know, shouldn't put off any entrepreneur today. It's just how the market is. And if they build a good business, there'll be plenty of reward in it for them. 
No, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing that insight with us. And I sort of want to talk a bit more about Cedars and its recent acquisition by Republic. Yeah. Obviously, you, you yourself have worked, you know, in M&A law and things like that. So it's interesting to hear from you, I suppose, you know, it was obviously a major milestone for your company. How did you decide it was a good fit for your company yeah. you know, and the right time for such a transaction? Well, you know, these 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 things have have a way of 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 coming together, you know, not necessarily in a in an entirely planned fashion. I mean, this all started for us when we explored merging with Crowdcube, which is the other sort of significant UK equity crowdfunding platform. And this had been a conversation, you know, between between our leadership team and theirs over a number of years. And, you know, when we got into sort of late 2019, early 2020, we we started to pursue it quite seriously. And, and I think the view we both had was that it wasn't necessarily a deal either of us really wanted to do emotionally. We're both very different businesses. We've had a long and not always super friendly sort of competition with each other, you know, very different cultures. But, you know, I think we both recognized that, you know, that, that, that getting to the next stage of growth, getting, you know, having done the kind of lean, agile, creative thing, now you do need to begin to scale. You do need to get to the next stages. And I think we both recognized that it was going to take a very long time to do that completely organically. Um, and that together we could get a lot of synergies and 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 really build something larger. And so uh, we 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 looked to do that deal. We we signed it. We agreed it. And then it got blocked by the Competition Markets Authority. And that was you know a very difficult period. You know, for I won't go into all the details of the sort of competition theory, but it, it what what effectively happened was. You know, we went to them and said, "Look, yeah, yes, we know on the surface it looks like we're two, the two big equity crowdfunding platforms, but if you actually look at our market, we're not competing. You know, only a limited amount of our competitions against each other. You know, the press may make it seem like we're always competing against each other, but in reality, we're competing against venture capitalists, angels, lots of other people in the space. You know, and and actually, we're a very small part of the market. Now, the CMA had no interest in listening to any of that and just said, "Nope, you're you're the you're the two equity crowdfunding platforms. We can't allow you to combine into one. You're done." And, you know, that was a blow. But what emerged from it, you know, a month or two after the deal was was blocked, was some conversations with Republic, where initially, you know, we'd long had a sort of informal relationship with them. And, you know, they said they to us, look, we're, we're, we want to come to Europe, and we'd like to find a way to work together on that. And, you know, we've raised a bunch of money here in the US, and we're, we're able to tap into a lot of capital, and we got the money to do something with. And that conversation sort of began to evolve from, can we partner to maybe Republic invests in us to, you know, if we're going to do this, let's go whole hog and, 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 and actually, you know, we would, be, you know, be, be acquired and become, and become part of, you know, become effectively the European arm of the Republic business. And, and, you know, one of the nice things there, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of economically and strategically, it, it's, it, it was a great deal. It makes a huge amount of sense. You know, I think, I think we're off to, you know, a great start as a combined company. And so while, while economically and strategically the Crowdcube deal would have been would have been a good one as well. You know, I'm very happy that we did with, with Republic. But the added element with Republic is that there's huge cultural alignment. We're very similar businesses, have a very similar outlook on the market in in a way that we in Crowdcube didn't necessarily have. And so we've had the joy, and it really has been a joy the last kind of year and a half as we went from initial conversations to negotiating the deal, all of the mechanics of completing it. And there was a huge amount of work. We had the joy of just continuing to work more and more closely with them, understand each other's strengths, you know, understand each other's perspectives and do so from a position of real kind of friendliness and cooperation. And so it it really has been an exciting opportunity. I don't know that it ever would have come about had we not done the tried the Crowdcube deal and 
had it knocked out. So, you know, in the end, in the end, these things, I suppose, happened for a reason, but that was, that was sort of how it all came together. That all sounds very exciting. Thank you for sharing that. And it's definitely a brand new chapter in Cedars's journey. And yeah, very exciting. And then obviously, I'd like to sort of now finish up the podcast with a final question, which is obviously given that, you know, our listeners are you know primarily students at university. Is there any piece of advice that you'd like to offer to them? So much problem, but you know, one piece is don't listen too closely to other people's advice. I mean, I think I think so much of the entrepreneurial journey is one of self-discovery or of, of discovery. And I, I think that it is very, very difficult to plan too much. I think a lot of it is is about going out there um and really doing it. But I look, I, I guess if I if I had one uh, actionable point, and this gets back a little bit to being in, in a downturn mentality, is the importance of cash. You know, and, and I think that when I was in business school 2008, 2009, and we were in a downturn, that was talked about a lot. I think in recent years, it has felt like there's so much venture money in the ecosystem. There's so many opportunities to raise. Yeah, you know, I think that message has sort of slipped and people have gotten much more into a mentality of, well, you know, I'll just raise a little bit and then raise more as I need it, et cetera. And, you know, the number one reason, and I see this from the perspective of Cedars having invested in, you know, 1800, you know, deals over, over the last 10 years and, you know, seen many of those companies hit the wall, you know, and sometimes it's a fundamental problem with the business and it just wasn't going to work. But more often than not, it's a business that maybe could have worked, but they just couldn't get the cash they needed to get to the next stage. And sometimes that was outside their control. Sometimes it was because maybe they were too dilution sensitive and didn't take enough. But either way, cash, cash remains king. And I think even more as we go through a difficult, difficult period, that focus, a ruthless focus on making sure there is enough cash in the bank that you're raising as early as you can and as much as you can is going to stand entrepreneurs in very good stead. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure you know, any students listening who are looking to found their own startups soon or already have their own startups. You know, I'm sure they'll really benefit from that advice. So yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. And thank you to our listeners for listening.